Hello and welcome to Page to Frame, the podcast where we talk about books, movies, and books getting turned into movies. Today I'm here with my friend Dylan DeAngelis. Dylan is the creator of That Nerd Dylan, a multi-platform brand that encompasses his podcast, website, and YouTube channel. He's joining me today to talk about Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer and its recent film adaptation directed by Alex Garland. In today's episode, we discuss the challenges of adapting a work as unique as this book, the difficulty we had getting into the story, and just how weird everything about Annihilation is. All right, thanks for listening. Dylan, thanks for joining. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me on. Of course. So, Dylan, this month you picked out Annihilation as the book to film that we'd be reading and watching. Oh, I, I picked the book. Is that what happened? Or was it you You gave me like a list of things and said, hey, Dylan, you want to do Annihilation? And I went, I guess, if we had to do Annihilation. I remember you picking it, but because there's no... Because I did not like this movie, and I can't imagine that I would want to read the book after watching that movie. I know that Pat and I had talked about Annihilation. We did like a whole sci-fi podcast like a few months ago. Uh, our friend Pat, he's, he's off being a mountain man he is. on the Appalachian Mountain Trail right now. So it was prior to him leaving for that, we did this sci-fi podcast where we talked about Annihilation. We talked about Altered Carbon and we talked about Ready Player One. We talked about like a bunch of like recent sci-fi that's come out. This is like right after Annihilation came out. Yeah, that was probably like recent in my mind. That was like months ago though now. And honestly, I had to like bring myself back into this world because honestly, I haven't thought about it much since then. Yeah, that makes sense. I did ask Dylan to be on the podcast like several months ago. This backlog I have of people and books I have to talk to and read is insane right now. Yeah, so we both read (laughs) Annihilation. Dylan, what was it about it at the time, do you think, that made it something that you wanted to read and learn more about after seeing the movie? I'll be honest, I, I wasn't particularly interested in, in reading the book initially. I mean, it's definitely something we're going to talk about today, but like, so so much of the time, like, book-to-movie adaptations can, can like, warp so much, and because movies have such, like, a particular structure to them that at least, like, big-budget films have to adhere to, whereas, like, like books, like, you know, books can be whatever they want to be. They can be, like, weird first-person diatribes and, like, person getting into their own head. Like, you can do weird stuff like that in a book, but with a movie, you have to have, like, you know, this particular three-act structure, and definitely something I was researching looking into this movie is that they had issues with the productions of this movie trying to uh, focus, like, focus down into, like, a particular structure to the point where they just said screw the plot of the book, we're just going to make a movie that's, like, vaguely similar to the concepts that are in the book. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting behind-the-scenes type of stuff, production of this movie. Alex Garland, the director, seemed to have a lot of love for this book without really remembering exactly what happens in this book. The studio did not seem to have a lot of love for his film, We can get into all of that a little bit more. Before I forget, Dylan, we will post a link back to the podcast you referenced that you did with Pat. And like you said, Pat is currently hiking the Appalachians, so shout out to him. I also hiked part of it with him, so fun times. He'll be on here when or if he gets back to talk about Dune. So, Dylan, usually I have our guests talk about the book first, but since both of us saw the movie first... I think it would be more interesting if we talked about our impressions of that and then our impressions of the book. So when did you see this movie? What did you think of it? Yes, the movie came out back in March, and it had a really weird release. 
because the the rights in the United States were a theatrical distribution, whereas basically every other major country, it came out on Netflix. It came out in the United States first, though, and then the Netflix distribution was like a couple uh, a couple weeks after that. What's interesting is that it's, I don't even think it's on United States Netflix now. It's not. Which is weird. Really weird. So, like, if, if you want to watch this movie, get a, uh, like, a VPN or something and go to UK Netflix and watch it through there because it is on UK Netflix. What interested me about the movie, obviously, is Alex Garland, his first film was Ex Machina, which is another science fiction film that I didn't see when it was in theaters, but watching it, I was like, man, this guy, like, he knows his shit, and he really knows how to make movies, and that was his directorial debut, so it's going to be interesting to see how he follows that up with another science fiction film here, and, you know, the source material wasn't something I was familiar with, but, like, I mean, I don't know, you'll need to, like, be familiar with the book to enjoy a movie, I think, like, I saw Ready Player One, and I had never read the book, and it wasn't really a big deal that I had never read the book. Uh, I'm always interested in new science fiction universes, so going into Annihilation, I was like, cool, let's let's see what they got here. It, like, it was basically an all-female cast, which is another thing that I thought was interesting. I think the main draw for me was the fact that, like, I, I really didn't know what was going on. A lot of the intrigue for both the book and the movie is this uh, ire of mystery and you honestly not knowing what's happening for large stretches of both the book and the movie. And, you know, that kind of thing is something that probably leads to audience members maybe becoming irritated with it as well, that people like to be told things and this story doesn't really tell us a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So I think that even though Garland did go ahead and kind of shelf the book and its lack of formal structure. I, I can't say that when I watched this movie, I uh, admired its adherence to good film structure. I don't think it really has such a solid beginning, middle, and end. There were a lot of issues that I had with the film. I thought the pacing was bad. I thought that the stilted dialogue didn't have the effect that he wanted it to. It just felt like stilted dialogue to me. And this was the only film I saw in theaters this year where I fell asleep, but I was very tired. So <laughs> it just, it didn't do anything for me, but how much enjoyment did you get out of it when you saw it? I thought the film was okay. I, the interesting thing about the movie is that it's like, it's pretty slow paced for a lot of it until you get to like the last like 15, 20 minutes where it's like, oh, this is the real movie. Mm -hmm. Like, this is this is what Alex Garland was, like, ramping up to, all of the stuff that happens at the lighthouse at the end of the movie. I compared it to a, a Tool music video because it's just got, like, that weird, shadowy, humanoid figure, which is actually the actress that plays that that figure. It was an actress that plays it. It's the, uh, it's the Asian woman from Ex Machina, so he, like, reused, you know, he reused, like, two of his star actors from Ex Machina, which is cool. That whole end sequence was fucking, it was weird and it was terrifying and it was like by far the most exhilarating part of it. Outside of that, the rest of the movie is pretty standard. I, I just, I have a big problem with this formula in movies where you have a group of characters and then they walk to a location and then a sequence happens and then they just walk to another location and a sequence happens. This movie falls into that. That's weird. Isn't Lord of the Rings one of your favorite movie series? Yeah, but I think Lord of the Rings... I mean, Lord of the Rings is all about the journey, though. In a lot of movies, the walking between places is just about, you know, you'll just have whatever dialogue put in there. Like, other movies that I've had problems with that have done this recently, like uh, like Kubo and the Two Strings, even though it's gorgeous, it's the exact same thing. It's like, we literally need to pick up these three items along the way. Moana is another one. It's just like three locations. You get to the end of it. It's very like basic framework in which you can write a movie with. 
And I would think that, like, Ex Machina is great because it doesn't follow that at all. It's just, like, this, like, horror story about these these two characters, and it's kind of like a weird jilted love story. Ex Machina is really well done. Mm-hmm. It feels like he's going a lot more formulaic with this one, which is why I think, you know, I, I think it's probably why we don't like it as much. Interesting. I never actually caught Ex Machina. It was definitely something I wanted to see, but never got around to it. I would agree with you. I didn't care for most of the movie overall, but that last sequence was pretty much worth the price of admission. The stuff he was able to do visually there, really, really cool. Really exciting stuff. I think that if you're interested in cool sci-fi type of art and what filmmaking can be stretched to do in terms of audio and visual artistic value, then at least Google the last 15 minutes of Annihilation. For me, when I went into this movie and while I was watching it, I was expecting it to have sort of the same vibes as Arrival, which was another big sci-fi picture that came out just a year before. It had a similar plot where this government agency recruits a female professor expert in her subject matter to check out something weird that's happening. But Arrival poses a lot of questions and then answers them in cool ways, whereas Annihilation leaves those questions open-ended. And I found Arrival to be like super satisfying and cool and well done, and I found Annihilation to not be those things. But how did you feel about the fact that Like you said, there was a big mystery element to this story that didn't quite get resolved. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's important to say that this book is the first book of a trilogy. So it's entirely possible that, like, the other two books help, like, answer the questions that we might have coming out of this. I have no interest in reading, you know, spoiler, I have no interest in reading the other two books in this series. I had trouble getting through this one. I'm glad you mentioned that. So you haven't read anything else about the next two books. No, in fact, the only thing that I know about the next two books is that there was some controversy over the casting of the movie because Natalie Portman's character is supposed to be Asian, I believe, and Jennifer Jason Lee's character is supposed to be like half Native American. Correct. However, neither of those things are even remotely hinted at in the first book, and that's all that Alex Garland read, so I'm giving them a pass for that. Yeah, I usually am pretty uh, strict or touchy about whitewashing characters, but in this case, he had no idea. <laughs> And you read the book, there's no mention no, of the main character's ethnicity, which is, in, in hindsight, kind of weird for how much the book goes into her character. I think it's interesting. You learn a lot about this woman, but you never learn as much as her name throughout the entire series. So it, it makes sense that you wouldn't get a good physical description of her in the book. But what I will say is that I did read the plot summaries of the next two books, on Wikipedia about an hour before you got here. (laughs) So once we start talking about the book a little bit more, I will give you a rundown and you can see if that piques your interest a little more or not. So I will say that this movie, one interesting thing is that even though it did end without answering any questions, it didn't end in a way that felt like it was begging for a sequel. It felt like it very intentionally ended in an ambiguous way without making the audience want to know what happens next. Just, it feels like it wanted you to be asking questions. And if it had drawn me into the movie for longer than the last 10 minutes, I would have probably been interested in the answers to those questions. But Yeah, yeah. one article that I was reading about the movie is, how do you make a movie that's the first movie in a trilogy when you have no interest in making the next two films? 
And that's basically what Annihilation is tasked to do here. There is an alternate, you know, quote, alternate ending to the movie. Uh, do you know what, yeah, about the alternate I, ending? I where, it. like, all of the meteors come crashing down at the end? Yeah. Uh, are, are we spoiling things? Like, are we going into basically everything about the movie in the book? Uh, we can spoil things, yeah. Okay. I mean, this the book's been out for a couple of years. The movie's been out of theaters for a while. And it's been available on Netflix in every other country except this one for... Since March? Yeah, since March. Yeah, so we can spoil it away. But yeah, that alternate ending's also weird, because I'm not sure if in the book series the Area X is caused by meteors or not. I mean, that, that's like the, the one... Like, I mean, we're, if we're talking like major differences, it's literally the first shot of the movie is the meteor crashing through the lighthouse. Yeah. And and like that that's the problem with watching the movie before reading the book. Is that I'm like when she gets to the lighthouse in the book, I'm like, oh, she's gonna go down the tunnel now, and like, there's no, there's no tunnel, there's no tunnel in the book because it wasn't caused by a meteor. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. There is like a tunnel type of thing in the book, but it's called the tower. It's a tower that goes down into the earth. I hate the the whole in the book, and she's like, oh, it's, it's a tower, not a tunnel. I was like, no, it's it's, it's tunnel. a tunnel. <laughs> tower goes tower goes up. <laughs> Dylan is an architect. That's his day job. <laughs> it was freaking me out. I was also like Googling floor plans of lighthouses when she was walking through the lighthouse. Because I was like, yo, lighthouses don't have this many rooms. <laughs> this lighthouse has so many rooms. Wow. I'm glad you're bringing that perspective to this as well. That's funny. Yeah. In the novel, the underground area and the lighthouse are two very separate places that Alex Garland seemed to have combined into sort of one place, one final destination for the end of the movie. And it's interesting because in the book, she goes to the tunnel slash tower, then she goes to the lighthouse, then she eventually comes back to the tunnel. And then back to the lighthouse at the very end. Oh, yeah. This book's all over the place. I mean, this book definitely doesn't follow that, like, journey and then stop and journey and stop. It's very much like, I'm going to walk here, then maybe I'll walk back. Jeff Vandermeer was influenced by a hike that he went on, and that's what made him want to write about this fictional science fiction Area X. Should we like it, like go over like the the basic plot of this story? I don't think we mentioned that yet. Yeah, we should. Why don't you run it down for us, Dylan? Sure. Run down the movie plot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the basic plot of the movie is that Natalie Portman plays a woman whose husband, played by Oscar Isaac, has gone off to look at this area called the Shimmer. It's called Area X in the book, and they're trying to figure out like what's going on in this area. Weird shit's happening in this part of Florida. Oscar Isaac comes back from his journey seemingly out of nowhere after a year. He's not himself. He gets picked up by this military group, as does she, and she ends up getting pulled into this expedition that's one of several expeditions that have gone into this area to try to figure out what exactly is happening. And basically, it's it's her and these three other women. In the book, it's it's five women and... I'm sorry. I got that right? I got it backwards. I think it's four. It's five in the movie, four in the book. Mm-hmm. And they're going in and to try to figure it out. That's basically where the book and the movie split from each other. The following sequences are pretty much all different. The, the only thing that's really similar about the two is the lighthouse being uh, an integral part. And in the movie, it's the end game point. In the book, it, it's kind of like a midway end game point that she gets to. There's this location called the tower or the tunnel, whether, you know, they're called by both things in the book. Mm -hmm. That's like basically not in the movie at all. And the main explanation that the movie gives is that the lighthouse had a meteor hit it. So the explanation is that this is aliens 
and that the shimmer basically it takes all living things in that area and kind of refracts their DNA into each other. So you're seeing animals that are kind of hybrids of one another exist. You see an alligator that has shark teeth in it, has rows of teeth like a shark has. You see plants that are behaving uh, in ways that humans behave. Like there's plants that grow in the shape of humans because they have human DNA in them. There's a lot of weird stuff. I think visually the movie really gives you the idea of what the shimmer is like. I think the book doesn't do as good of a job at describing the area, get, you know, showing you what Area X is like. In a lot of ways, the book kind of makes it seem like Area X is just like a normal place. It's just like a regular forest in some places. In the movie, it's like fucking chaos at a certain point. Like, everything's messed up, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and for as few answers as the movie gives us about what's going on, this first book gives you even less answers about what's actually happening. I think that the description of the area in the book was very well written, but I would agree that it doesn't quite offer as many cool-looking or interesting-sounding visuals as the movie does. So it really reads almost more like a walk, a really detailed walk through a pretty forest. So when you talked about this with Pat, did you guys both find that you enjoyed it? Were you? How would you rank it in terms of other sci-fi films that have come out this year? I think it's okay. I, I, this is a movie that I would describe as like very like competently made. However, I think the material at hand here just isn't like it's just not interesting enough for me. And, like, I don't mind movies that don't give us all the answers, but they at least gotta give us, like, some of the answers. The whole end sequence of the movie involves Jennifer Jason Lee screaming Annihilation, and then this giant shadow humanoid thing comes out of nowhere and starts mimicking Natalie Portman's actions, and it's trying to, like, become a doppelganger of her, and then she kills the thing by having it burst into flames, and it, like, basically destroys the lighthouse... This is something that does not happen, at least in this book (laughs) that we read. It's a completely different end sequence. Yeah, that's another interesting thing. So doppelgangers have been a trope in fiction that's used to be really off-putting for the reader and the characters. And the way the book uses it is pretty subtle. It's almost like mentioned in passing the first time a doppelganger is seen. I believe she's reading her husband's journal and he mentions that he saw another version of himself and he was like, I don't know what to do about this. In the movie, when she finds another version of herself, they have a fight. Like they have like a, an epic showdown and it's part of the big climax. So the way they utilize that trope is very different between the two. So let's jump into the book a little bit more. What were your impressions when you first started reading this? Well, the first thought I had when looking at it was, uh, I was like, I was, pre- I was pretty surprised at how short it was mm-hmm. by looking at it, but it takes a while to read it. <laughs> it's about 200 pages, and it's, it's all written in first person from our main character. Like you said, our characters have names in the movie, so like Natalie Portman's name is uh, Lena in the movie, but she's just called the biologist in the book and the entire book is written from her perspective. One of the interesting things that I noticed that's kind of revealed late in the book is that this is not just a first person tale of our main character, but it's also kind of like us reading her personal journal because she does some fourth wall breaking later in the book where it's like specifically talking to like, Hey, so you Mr. Person who's reading this right now, this is what I was thinking. And I thought that was kind of interesting 
Because if you watch the movie, it doesn't seem like a movie that's based on a book that's completely written in first person because it's such an ensemble piece in a lot of ways. They got four, they got at least like four of the five women are like pretty well known actresses in these roles. And in the book, it's like it is the biologist and then it's the other people in her group. (laughs) There's like such a strong disconnect. The book really hinges on that main character and how interesting it wants to make her. I would say like, a fifth of the book is just her telling stories about her life that are completely disconnected from her, her experiences in area X. I thought that was interesting, Mm -hmm. but man, the first like half of the book, it feels like nothing happens and it's, it's kind of tough to get through. The back half is a little better, but yeah, that for this first half of the book, it's a lot of walking around and seeing a little bit of weird stuff, but mostly just normal fauna and flora in a forest. One difference in structure between the book and the movie is that the book actually starts off with the expedition group already in Area X, or the Shimmer, whereas the movie starts off by detailing how she gets there. Her husband coming back, then her going to that secret shadowy organization, and them finally recruiting her, and then her and her group setting off. In this book, all that stuff is still shown a little bit, but it's done through flashbacks, whereas there's only one or two very short flashbacks once they're actually in the shimmer in the movie. So how do you think that affects the way the story played out? This in-media res version that they did in the book, starting you off in the middle of the quote-unquote action, versus the slow build-up of the movie. I mean, it's tough not giving any backstory, like just throwing people into a world. It's certainly a choice that was made by the author of the book. I mean, I think it works in a book because, like I was saying at the beginning, like you, you can kind of like break the mold when you're doing storytelling in book form. You know, as long as it's got, you know, as long as you know where you're going, you can kind of play around with that structure a little bit. In the movie, like you got to assume like the person watching it is like at least a little bit dumb. You got to explain things to moviegoers, and I, I like the way they did it in the movie. I think it works for both. To give you like a straightforward answer, I think it works that the movie like builds up to it a little more, and the book throws you right into it. But it, it it is kind of like like a little backwards that the book throws you right into all the action, but then there's no action for the to throw you into. Mm-hmm. There's like nothing happening. It's like the first page is like, yeah, hey, yo, dog, we're in Area X already. We're gonna do some walking around. Though another thing that they inform you really early in the book is the fact that the psychologist, who's played by Jennifer Jason Lee in in the movie, is that she basically hypnotizes them. And there's this whole like this whole story point of hypnosis and the fact that like she put self destruct hypnotic terms in the heads of all the other expedition members that if she says it, it would make them kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And that term is annihilation it's for the biologist, and it doesn't work because the hypnosis doesn't work on her anymore. Because the movie like immediately explains to you that it's aliens, yeah. and it's this meteor causing everything. When you're reading the book, there's parts where you're thinking, is the biologist just going crazy? Is she just, an- is she just imagining all of this stuff? Mm-hmm. That I thought was interesting. But again, just the fact that like the book doesn't explain anything it just like really like like frustrated me once I got out of the book. I went like, "What's the point of all this? If we're not going to like explain things." <laughs> I also didn't enjoy this book up until probably halfway through, but I really like this book coming out of it, and I will probably pick up the next two. It definitely hits more of this off-putting horror sense than I expected it to. 
I think that was something that the movie was trying to strike at as well, but didn't quite do it for me. So this book has more in common with books like House of Leaves, if you're familiar with that, than it does with other sci-fi or other hard sci-fi. Yeah, like when you read Dune, you're going to be like, this is nothing like Dune. Mm -hmm. Like Dune is a world that's being built. This doesn't feel like a world. This feels like a character experiencing a world, which is much different. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess one interesting thing is that the psychologist is definitely more of an antagonist in the book than she is in the film. And the real threats to the biologist's survival are her team members rather than the actual Area X around her. So I found that to be interesting. She didn't really know anything about her companions in the book. Whereas the movie has some, like, one scene of clumsy exposition for each of the characters. So how did that help you connect to the other characters uh, in the movie compared to the book? Um, Knowing a little bit about their backstories. And which version did you like more, I guess? Like that ensemble focus of the film or the primary character focus of the book? Yeah, well, the movie has this theme of like destruction everybody tends to go back to things that will destroy them so each of the characters in the movie uh have something that's destroying them and going into the shimmer is kind of them like extrapolating that more so jennifer jason lee's character it's explained that she's dying of cancer so she's gonna die anyway going into here uh uh, Gina Rodriguez's character, I believe, has PTSD from her time in the military. Tessa Thompson's character uh, has self-harmed in the past, and you can see her, you know, her cutting scars on her arms. And then uh, our biologist, she's kind of, I mean, it, it goes into a lot more in the book, but she's kind of like not a great person. <laughs> and right. she has a lot of destructive tendencies and kind of pushes people away that try to get close to her. So that's a theme that's delved into in the movie that the book doesn't really do a great job of. The supplementary characters that aren't the biologists in the book are, are kind of useless. Like, the anthropologist is is barely in the book. Mm-hmm. She's, like, in and out pretty fast, and then she, she dies. And the surveyor is kind of in and out, like, and when she comes back in, at, you know, near, the, what, like, the back half, yeah, she just gets shot. You know, she's not in it very fast very much. And the psychologist, who is the most interesting other character than our main character, she's not even at that much. She pieces out, and then she has, like, a brief, like, interesting conversation with the biologist, and then she dies. The book, like, really wants you to only care about the biologist, where the movie wants you to be interested in the other characters as well, which I think is a smart decision. You need to have, like, compelling characters when you're writing stories. And, I mean, obviously it worked for the book because this book got really popular and they made a movie out of it, so I I guess you wrote it well. But when you're really hinging it on that one character, you better do a good job at writing that one character. Mm -hmm. I found I was pretty invested in this character, or at least interested by her, just because there was a stilted tone in her writing and the way that she spoke where it was hard to connect with her. It was like, how does this person connect with other people at all, period? And I think that was the purpose, at least of the surveyor in the book. It's so that you can see the surveyor is kind of a normal person who gets scared when scary things happens and gets angry. And 
emotes, whereas the biologist is very flat and one-toned. So every other character in the book serves the purpose of explaining more things about the biologist and contrasting against her. You mentioned that conversation she had with the psychologist right before the psychologist died. I thought that was a great part of the book. The biologist is like torn between comforting her or straight up interrogating her for information, and she mostly does the latter which I thought was great, and we still don't get any answers that are satisfying. And that was also where we get the twist that the word annihilation is the self-destruct button for all the other scientists besides the psychologist on the expedition. So when the psychologist shouts annihilation in the movie, it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> but when she shouts it in this book, what it's supposed to do is get the person listening to you to immediately commit suicide, which was delivered in this cool, twisty kind of way, and then just kind of the biologist moves on past that. I thought it was neat. Yeah, and like, I mean, the biologist is kind of like a like a, a superhero as the book goes along. Like, she's basically not affected by the things that are really affecting the other expedition members in both the movie and the book. This is not the first expedition that's gone into this area, and most other expeditions have, have resulted in everybody dying that's part of the group. In both the movie and the book, her husband was part of a previous expedition, and I thought her husband just wasn't going to be a character as I was reading through the book, because he's introduced so late into the book. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense, because she, she sucks at like empathizing with people, and... She doesn't get along with other humans very well, so it would make sense that she's not married. I thought that was kind of weird that she had a husband. Like, how, how did they, like, start dating and stuff like that? It's kind of weird. Yeah, they go into that a little bit, and they kind of explain that he, too, was, like, a normal guy that she was never able to connect with. But I found a lot of her thoughts about him, I think, really resonated how she realized only too late that she should have made an effort to connect with him to be able to see past the surface level of him. And even though she loved him and lived with him, she never really understood him. I thought that was some great writing about what it's like to be with another person. Because the movie makes that a lot more conventional. The movie makes it that they're in a loving relationship that, you know, they might fight sometimes, but it's more or less like a normal marriage they have. Mm -hmm. And then when he comes back and he's sick... In the book, he comes back and he dies. He does not die in the movie. Uh, she wants answers. In the book, her motivation is she's just like she's just like a crazy person that's interested in biology. Yeah. Uh, but in the movie, she's trying to like figure out what's wrong with her husband, and she finds this is the best way to you know get those answers. Mm -hmm. So in the movie, she's like kind of this normal person and is a little bit off because she's sort of depressed because her husband disappeared. And then she just kind of remains a little bit flat because she's confused and she's been feeling down. In the book, it shows that she's always been this sort of almost non-human type of person that views the world through this strange objective lens and makes no effort to fully connect with other humans. You want to talk about the crawler? Yeah. So the crawler is this quasi-mysterious monster thing that only exists in the book. The crawler lives in the tunnel slash tower, and it writes this strange writing on the wall. It's writing that, like, appears on the wall. It's like, it's almost like the writing is an organism. 
Mm-hmm. It's interesting to like try to visualize the way that they they talk about it. Right. So the, the writing book. is made out of like tiny parasites, I believe. But I think it's easier to sort of picture it as just fluorescent moss or something that spells out ugly letters and spells out just one crazy long run-on sentence. It's like biblical text is how I kind of read it. Mm -hmm. The sentence starts off, Where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner? I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead to share with the worms that... And then it just continues on from there without a period ever, I believe. And it's being written sort of by this crawler, which is what they call this unseen monster that remains unseen up until the very end of the book. So they're sort of chasing after it, but they're also super scared of it, at least at first. And one of the earliest twists in the book is that the anthropologist who we mentioned pieced out early on, she pieced out because she was hypnotized by the psychologist to go up to the crawler and try and get a sample from it. And the crawler killed her. So we know pretty early on that this thing is some sort of threat. Yeah, I mean, going through early parts of the book, you know, just like a lot of other questions I had was that because the biologist sees the writing and the surveyor does not see the writing at first. So it, that's the author putting the seed into your head that maybe the biologist is just imagining all these things. So maybe the crawler is another thing that she's imagining. Basically, the end of the book is this big confrontation between her and the crawler where it seems like it's like sucking the energy from her almost. And it's just like weakening her and weakening her. And it's not exactly entirely explained like how she escapes. She just kind of like escapes and gets away from it. Yeah, it loses interest in her. The way I interpreted it was that she approaches it and then it, like you said, was extracting energy from her. I saw it as the crawler itself sort of saw her as something to be sampled and it was looking at her through the lens of a scientist and once he was done getting the information he wanted out of her, he kind of tossed her aside. We should also mention the fact that the crawler is revealed to basically be like this like mutated version of a man that was i believe he was like a worker at the lighthouse right he He was was like he was the lighthouse keeper yeah yeah he was one of the lighthouse keepers she finds a photo of this man in the lighthouse and then she sees his face in the crawler when she's having the confrontation with it at the end of the at the end of the book i mean that's really like a big divide between the movie and the book is that the movie does feel like a science fiction film that kind of turns into a horror film at the end of it but the book really is a horror, like, it's a horror story. And the biologist is the perfect protagonist for a horror, uh, for, for a horror film because, uh, she's just not scared of anything, which is unrealistic in my opinion. She's just like the surveyor. Every time the surveyor was talking to her, I was like, we should just do what the surveyor is saying. The surveyor is the rational person here. This expedition's fucked. We've lost two people. Let's just get out of here. You know, we'll regroup and, and, you know, maybe we'll come back another time. But the biologist is so interested in knowledge and, like, isn't interested in self-preservation. It, it's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird decisions on the part of our protagonist here. See, Natalie Portman's motivations in the movie is that she just wants answers about her husband. Her husband is the big motivating factor here. In the book, it's, like, knowledge that's the motivating factor. She wants to know what's happening. So it's it's a big divide between the two there. Yeah, and I think that's such a sci-fi type of 
like role to give a character that thirst for knowledge and again also that idea of knowledge for knowledge's sake harkens back to the garden of eden and the forbidden fruit there's all sorts of things in literature that sort of puts knowledge for the sake of knowledge as being a bad thing that we shouldn't pursue well, I mean, when it's when it's knowledge at the expense of like your own safety, I think that's when it when it becomes a problem. I mean, the biologist basically discloses that when she goes into the the tunnel at the end of the book, she she's not really intending to like come back. She's kind of just um, conceding the fact that she's probably about to die going into here, and she's cool with that as long as she learns what's happening before she dies. Which is an interesting way to look at it. I mean, self-preservation just isn't something that's wired into this main character. But also, I mean, we learn so much about her through the course of the book that she's not like other humans, that she's not someone that, you know, is, is emotional in the way that other people are, that learning more about stuff is what is most interesting to her. So... It's a big change, even though, like, they play the same character. Natalie Portman is not this character in the movie. It's a completely different person. These two things are so different from each other that it's really hard to make these comparisons and to say, is it a faithful adaptation? It's not, but it was never intended to be. I'll tell you a little bit more about what happens next in this series. It answers maybe some questions. So, the third book, I believe the first section starts off from the point of view or at least the main character is the lighthouse keeper. So it's set 30 years or so before Annihilation. So you get to see what he's about. And he also becomes friends with a nine-year-old girl who you learn actually in the second book grows up to be the psychologist. So the reason that the psychologist from Annihilation goes into Area X is because she wants to go back to where she's from one last time and try and find some answers. So that's sort of a big twist in this series, is that the human antagonist of the first book has a connection to Area X. The second book follows the new director of the research team that keeps sending people into Area X. And even though he's now the director, people still aren't giving him answers. So it's sort of about his rebellion against the authority that he works for, but also his quest for answers and being just as confused as the biologist was within Area X, right on the outskirts of Area X. And that book ends with him and the biologist finding a new secret entrance to Area X and deciding whether or not to jump in, uh, which they do. And that leads to the third book. We find out more about what happens to the biologist after the end of Annihilation in the third book, I believe the version of her that came back out and showed up in the second book was a doppelganger, of course, and that the biologist that we came to know in Annihilation becomes part of the world of Area X. Um, that's what I managed to pick up from reading the Wikipedia summaries. Does that change your perception of this book at all? Does it make you want to read more? I mean, not really. I, I kind of find this world a bit uninteresting. It feels, I mean, it feels like a, a story that was written by a guy that went on a hike that he really liked. Yeah, I mean, I loved that. I went on a hike with our friend Pat, as I mentioned, and looking at stuff was just really cool. Like, when you're in it, you're in it, and it's nice. 
so I enjoy reading about nature a good bit now, but like you said, it's it's a little bit of a slow burn. Like you know what the you know what the book needs is like more weird shit. The movie has like it, it, enough weird shit, like where like Tessa Thompson like decides to just go be a tree person. That was cool. Like that's cool. Like we need moments like that in the book where a person says, "Fuck this, I want to go become a tree." And then, like, branches start growing out of, you know, her scars. Like, it's a cool visual. The book just doesn't have enough, like, moments like that. Like, confrontation with the crawler. Like, that in, in the movie would have been, like, fucking terrifying. Like, her, like, approaching this, like, fucking... I, I, I'm imagining, like, a giant caterpillar or something like that. Like, a giant black caterpillar. And it's got the face of a person. And, like, it would have been horrifying to look at in a movie. Like, that. that's a cool sequence, but... The book just doesn't have enough of those, and if I'm going to take a guess, I'm guessing the other books are probably something similar, where it's like, he wants to do character studies, and he doesn't want to give you, like, as much, like, story progression as you might want. The fact that you can kind of, like, like, I have it written in our, you know, our rundown here of, like, specifically what happens in the book, it's so basic. Mm-hmm. It's like they, you know, they walk to the tunnel, and then, then you go to the lighthouse, and you go back to the tunnel ends of the lighthouse like it's very basic to the point where the journeys in between almost nothing happens Mm -hmm. i was surprised at that in the book is that when she leaves the surveyor at the tunnel she's at the lighthouse like two pages later yeah so it's like is this about the journey or is this about the character yeah yeah you're absolutely right there's there's two primary destinations in this book and she just goes to both twice (laughs) And that's it. In the movie, at least it's spelled out that, like, we need to get to the lighthouse. And then, you know, shit happens at certain locations on their way to the lighthouse. So at least that progression makes sense. There's no backtracking involved. The movie ends also with Natalie Portman escaping. And she gets back with Oscar Isaac. And then it's ambiguous whether she's a doppelganger or not. But I think it's pretty obvious that she killed the doppelganger. With the grenade, so I don't think I don't think that's ambiguous at all. I think Oscar Isaac's definitely a doppelganger because yeah. it shows that him kill himself in that video. You know, I think the movie does a good job at tying a bow on this world. That obviously, it's called the Southern Reach trilogy, the book series that Jeff Vandermeer want to go back to that world and tell more stories in it. Um, I'm probably not going to read the other two books, but uh, it's interesting. I wish they had fleshed out the psychologist more to make us care about that character later in the series. Right. I mean, I think about something like Harry Potter where, like, you know, we don't learn anything about Dumbledore's backstory until the seventh book in the series. But, you know, you you come to love Dumbledore, so once you learn his backstory, you go, oh, man, this is great. It's great that we learned that he had this troubled past, and it really makes you care for him more. I don't care about the psychologist. (laughs) We learn nothing about (laughs) it. No, that's true. It's similar to the movie... You find out only, I think, in the third book that the psychologist had cancer the whole time. That was interesting. So Alex Garland was hearing snippets of information from the next two books, but he did not read them before finishing this movie. I wonder if he's read them now. I had initially heard that he didn't even read the book, that he read, like, the spark notes of it. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that, and I didn't know if that was true. But the research I was doing today, apparently he did read the book at least once, but it seems like that did not affect, like, the screenplay that he wrote. (laughs) No. He says that he intentionally did not reread the book because he wanted to kind of write it as a memory of the book and that that would contribute to the dreamlike feeling 
that the movie has, which I can see. I think the movie was successful in getting that sort of ethereal tone, at least in terms of visuals and sound design. I thought that the actual dialogue writing just felt bad to me and that the story beats also didn't work for me, but it felt dreamlike in the sense that I fell asleep. So <laughs> the best part of the movie is the visuals, in my opinion. Oh, agreed. They were dope. When they walk through that little veil to get in, like, there are so many bad movies that involve characters walking around in a forest aimlessly. This is one that, like, really tries to make an interesting film out of that. And I gotta give them props to that. Uh, like, it only had, like, a $40 million budget, so... I don't know, it must have been hard, like, making sets of just, like, trees that were, like, weird colors and shit, and trying to make it not feel uh, repetitive and boring. Uh, and I also liked a lot of the, you know, a lot of the little monsters and uh, other visuals that the movie has. Like, yeah, so the movie has, like, actual monsters that the characters kind of fight against. This book doesn't have anything like that, unless you count the crawler, which you shouldn't, because it's not it's not quite a monster that you can shoot at and kill it. But the book, they, they literally fight an alligator with, like, spiral teeth going down its throat that looks really cool. They fight this cool bear monster. You want to talk about the bear monster? Yeah. They called the bear Paddington on set. Uh, it's a bear that's basically got, like, it's, like, skin ripped away on the front of it. So I believe it's blind. But it can, like, mimic the voices of things that it kills. So it kills uh, the one woman. I think she's the anthropologist, or what the anthropologist is supposed to be in the movie. Uh, her name is Cass Shepard. She's one of the scientists. She's played by Tuva Novotny. It kills her, and then when Gina Rodriguez freaks out and ties up the other three characters in this village, she hears that woman's voice again and goes to see if she needs help, and it turns out it's, the fucking, it's fucking Paddington coming back with the vengeance. And that whole scene is awesome. It's there's a ton of tension in that scene where they're trying not to make a, you know, trying not to make a move around it. So that's really well done. That scene was good. I remember waking up and suddenly they were all tied to chairs and I was like, what's happening here? Yeah, not good. <laughs> um, but yeah, that bear was really cool. The the powers that it had was cool and the visuals were great. And I believe you said it was called Paddington. It might have been called something else like a play on Paddington, but they called it that I believe it's in your notes because it was the same VFX team that did a lot of designs for this movie that worked on the Paddington Bear series, which is really funny because those those films couldn't be further from this one. They were the, the lot that they were shooting this on was right next to the lot where they were shooting The Last Jedi, and Oscar Isaac had the same trailer for both films. He would just go back and forth between them while he was shooting. Interesting. That's cool. That's convenient for him. He has a great contract writer. Yeah, that's cool, right? Yeah, I bet they probably weren't supposed to shoot those at the same time, but somebody was like, yo, Oscar's not going to want to do these back-to-back. Can we just... <laughs> same lot? That's hilarious. I mean, Oscar Isaac's in this movie for a cup of coffee, so... <laughs> the By the way, Benedict Wong is in this movie, and I still think that Benedict Wong has the best agent in Hollywood... Because there's so many movies where he's just like, he's just in a room by, like, he's just in a room for all of the runtime that he's in. Like, in Infinity War, he's in, like, two scenes. Yeah. But he gets on all the posters, right, and his name's on everything. Yeah. And he got to, he did a good job in Infinity, like, his character got to actually beat one of Thanos' disciples, which none of the other characters did until the very end of that movie. 
But in Annihilation, his character is entirely unique to the movie. Maybe he exists in one of the sequels to the book. But basically, the framework of the movie is he's interrogating Natalie Portman, and basically the movie is her recollection of that. And so for Benedict Wong, all of his scenes in the movie are just him in that room talking to Natalie Portman. He's probably there for three days, and that was it. Pretty nice gig. Good for him. Yeah, that was cool. I'm glad we got a little bit more details about the secret organization chartering the Shimmer than we did in the book. Overall, though, I would say that I enjoyed this book more than I enjoyed the movie. The book felt like a really unique experience to me that had more in common with, like, these really creepy, slow-burn horror stories that I've read, and it was... It's really sort of postmodern and doesn't rely on jump scares or overtly scary events to happen in order to be scary. It just sort of felt scary. Whereas the movie did rely on some jump scares, and even though they were cool visuals, it relied on scary-looking monsters that you could shoot your way against. So I didn't care for that as much. Did you have a preference for one over the other? I mean, I I definitely like the movie better than the book. Um, I mean, the movie's definitely more conventional storytelling with the way that it's crafted. The, The book is a very specific character study within this world that he's creating, that if you're someone that wants to read this book, I would say, like, you gotta sit down and read it. And you can't, like, read it over the course of, like, several sittings. Like, really take time out of your day <laughs> to just fucking cruise through this thing, because it, it is a slog at parts of it. And because it's in first person, like, especially the back half of the book is just, like, really devoid of dialogue. I mean, it's just descriptions and descriptions. There's tons of paragraphs, so... You really need to get invested in it to really, you know, go through this book. But, you know, it sounds like you liked the book more than I did. Mm-hmm. I kind of enjoyed that I read it, but I think my overall thoughts on both the book and the movie is that I just wish this world was more interesting. Yeah, so we mentioned that the movie had a really weird and interesting release method of coming out in North America and I think China and then everywhere else it came out straight to Netflix. So we don't really have numbers on how successful this movie actually is. It just about hit its budget in terms of box office. And then they obviously got some sort of licensing deal with Netflix to show it there. So we don't know if it made money or not. I believe it was like it was like 20 million or something. It sold for Netflix. It was like an amount of money so that they knew they would make a profit on the film. Oh, okay. So that that was basically their way of outing that i mean research that i was doing before this a lot of it involved like the producers being upset that they they were thinking that people weren't going to understand the movie that it was going to be like too out there Mm -hmm. which is funny because it like it's not especially that when they like kind of explain things to you i mean it's not the only movie that's ever had a cliffhanger ending right and the world isn't that strange that like at least there's the part of the movie where they go, hey, the Shimmer is just this area where, like, everything that's within it, the organisms, their DNA kind of refracts off each other, and you get these weird mutated combinations of things. That is, that is never explained in the book. Right. So at least the movie gives you something. I don't know which one's, like, harder. I guess the the book is definitely harder to wrap your head around, but at the same time, that felt thought-provoking for me, whereas the movie didn't. Yeah, the movie felt like a a lamer version of Arrival to me. I couldn't help but keep making comparisons to that film, which I really like. 
this book, again, wholly unique experience for me. The book also has an interesting release method. They released all three of these books in the trilogy over the course of eight months, which is kind of unheard of, but it managed to boost sales a lot. So two weird release strategies for the Annihilation stories. But it, So if somebody were to make a movie of this book, like this specific story, do you think it would work as a movie? No, but it would probably work as like an HBO miniseries or something like that. I don't think it's uh, set up properly for like a two-hour beginning-middle-end type of story, but an episodic storytelling type of thing where they maybe do throw in some cool-looking monsters once every other episode, I think that could work really well. And adhering strictly to the formula and story within the book. I think it would be great. Yeah, so like I think we both agree that I mean I think Alex Garland agrees with us too that if you were going to adapt this from a book to a movie, like there are things you would need to add mm-hmm. to like give it a little bit more substance, like you know visually and from a story perspective. Like you you can't you can't have an entire movie that like exists in a character's head. Right. There's got to be experiences that occur. Right. Yeah. It's very much the book definitely relies on her narration to be one of the focal points and interesting parts of it. And you can't do that in a movie. Because, like, the flashbacks are interesting. She's got a bunch of flashbacks in the book. And I think of something like Lost, where the way that Lost episodes would go is that they would all, each episode would focus on a character, and then you would have the progression of the story on the island, but you'd periodically have these flashbacks showing information about the character. So you could do something like that. If you do it as a TV series where you've got these characters going through Area X, and then every now and then you've got a flashback of our biologist in parts of her life. Yeah, I think that could be really cool. I would probably watch that. And I bet at some point in the future, if people, if enough people like us check out this book because of the movie, they might do something like that. So would you watch a TV show of this movie or of this book? Yeah, probably. Yeah, cool. Me too. Do you have anything else you wanted to mention? Yeah, I just find it interesting that they like picked this book specifically to be adapted into a movie. Especially someone like Alex Garland, who like people really liked Ex Machina. It got I forget if it got one or two Academy Award nominations. I know I think it won for visual effects. His first movie is really good, and the fact that he took he chose this as his second one is interesting because I, I doubt it was as su- successful as he wanted it to be. And you've been comparing this to Arrival, and I think that Garland is someone who could be like Denis Villeneuve if he just picked his movies correctly, and I think this might have been a bit of a misstep for him. Mm-hmm. This is a really complicated story to try to adapt into a movie, especially a story where you're only going to be kind of taking bits and pieces from it. Maybe you want to do Arrival for a later podcast, because Arrival is based on a book called The Story of Your Life, I believe. Yeah, that would be great, and I think that's a short story, too, so it would be pretty quick. But yeah, adapting science fiction from book to movie is... It's complicated. Yeah, I know you've... When I pitched the idea of this podcast to you, you suggested a bunch of sci-fi titles, so that's... So we'll probably circle back to some of those at some point. Uh, yeah, I mean, popular science fiction is, is pretty prone to being adapted into movies because you have this pre-existing universe and you have the possibilities for sequels and it's it's just more revenue and, you know, more, you know, interest in fan bases and stuff like that. So it's a reason why science fiction is uh, something that gets focused on so much, but it's not always successful, unfortunately. I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Dune, Dune is probably the most popular science fiction book ever, 
it, there's never been a good movie about it, and oh, but there will be. People have been kind of scared to try, and <laughs> that's why, like, it's it's our guy Villeneuve again. He's going to be trying to tackle it coming up. So I'm excited for that. We'll see where that goes. Let's see what Garland actually is working on now. So Garland, I think, also wrote the Dread movie, if you remember that. Yeah, I mean, he did screenwriting prior to Ex Machina. It's not like he did nothing before Ex Machina. He kind of built up to being a director. Yeah, all pretty much everything on his filmography for screenplays is like a really well-regarded sci-fi action movie. And now he's leaning as a director into like more hard sci-fi, which I really admire. This guy, Vandermeer... I mean, his writing's all over the place. He did comic books. He did other novels. I think they're a good combo, and I would like to see them work together again. Maybe not in the Southern Reach trilogy, though. Now, I don't know. Did did Jeff Vandermeer like the movie adaptation? I didn't find anything on that, but I do know that he gave Garland, like, express permission to change it as much as he wanted, which I think is great. They didn't didn't do the the George Lucas thing where... He gave him some like notes on like you know how to how to fix the story, and then the director said, "Lol, nope, I'm good." So I don't see anything on Alex Garland's Wikipedia page as I did a quick cursory glance of what he's working on next. But I could imagine it's going to be another hard sci-fi thing. Hopefully, one of his own original stories. I need to check out Ex Machina because if it's as good as people say, then it's got to be like one of the best recent sci-fi movies in history. Oh yeah, it really is. Um, I think it's on Amazon Prime Instant Stream, so you can okay. check it out there. I have that. Perfect. All right, so that's all I have for Annihilation. Uh, do you have anything else? No. Great. I think we've gotten it all out. Dylan, thanks for coming on. This is the point where you can plug anything you're working on, anything you want me to share. Yeah, so... Uh, like you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, my website is called That Nerd Dylan. I have a YouTube channel where I do podcasts. Uh, it's like every like week or two now. I, I was doing every week for a while, and then now it's like every couple weeks, basically. It's the TND podcast. You can check that out on SoundCloud. But, you know, all my stuff is on thatnerddylan.com. I know you've done some writing for it now as well. I appreciate that. You know, it's just a place where I, you know, I'll, I'll post about Star Wars and Marvel and harry potter like whatever i'm interested in so uh if you're interested in that kind of stuff you know check me out that nerddylan.com yes sir it's a great website dylan thank you again for coming on i really appreciate it that's it for this week's episode of page to frame hope you enjoyed hearing dylan and i try to make sense of annihilation for more episodes of page to frame and related content check out the website page to frame.com thanks for listening